Take your Bible and turn to Zechariah chapter 7. It's in the Minor Prophets. Rarely ever read, seldom ever preached, but a powerful, powerful book. Um, Zechariah, the name means the Lord remembers. There are 29 other Zacharias in the Old Testament, so therefore we know it, was, uh, it would have made the, a baby book, naming book in Zechariah's day. It would have been a popular name among the Hebrew people. And it would have been popular because the people were constantly having to remind themselves that the Lord does remember. Because there are people who could easily be convinced the Lord has forgotten us, uh, aren't they? Because they're being led into captivity in Egypt and captivity in Assyria and captivity in Babylon. They spend more time out of the land of Israel than they do in the land, it seems, at times. Zechariah was both prophet and priest. He, like Haggai, his counterpart, um, was uh, witnessing to the need to rebuild the temple. The people began the rebuilding project. They had been in exile about 70 years. They had been given the decree to go back into the land, into Jerusalem, build a temple. But the people, like people do, had grown weary of building. They had gotten tired. They had burned out. They needed some R&R. They wanted to take a beach trip. And Zechariah shows up and says, Hey, hey, we have a job. We have a task. We have a need. We need to build this temple. We need to finish what we've begun. His prophecy comes to us during a time of Darius, the king of Persia. And, uh, and we can specifically say that it began in 584 B.C. Uh, that's what we're able to calculate based on his description in Zechariah chapter 1. But now in Zechariah 7, we're two years past that. The book of Zechariah breaks down pretty easily. The first six chapters contain eight visions, what are called eight night visions. And it's in these visions that Zechariah uh, gains the fame of being the Old Testament equivalent of the Apostle John. Zechariah is known as the book of the Apocalypse in the Old Testament. That's because he sees things like a loaf of bread coming down. He sees a warrior mounted on a steed. It has a lot of similarities with Revelation in this way. But chapter 7 and 8 break the book up, divide it. So you have, here you have the eight night visions, and then in this you have the sermon in a sense. The call of Zechariah to the people. The announcement of their sin and the call for them to come back to God. And then in the last section of the book, we have the burden of Zechariah. The burden of Zechariah, which brings us into one of the most Christ-centered sections of all the Old Testament. Matter of fact, when I was selecting the topic, or the, 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 as you know, I'm in the middle of a sermon series based around the need to preach Christ from all the Scripture. It's an easy temptation. It would have been simple for me to go somewhere in the latter half of Zechariah and preach like Zechariah 9, where he uh, prophesies directly of Christ coming in uh, to the triumphal entry or something like that. But I didn't. I chose a harder text. So I have the potential to fail, which I pray won't happen. And even if it does, that the Lord will use my failure. Zechariah 7 and 8 are the watershed from these visions and these burdens. And here we are in the proclamation section, the preaching of Zechariah. And I just want to read it. I know it's a long text. In our minds, it's long, but just listen to the text. We're two years 
after the beginning of the book. He's had the visions, we've had two years, and now here he is with the sermon to follow up the visions, to lead into the burdens. So we're in 586 B.C., the fourth year of King Darius. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel, and some have calculated this as December the 7th, according to our calendar. Now the people of Bethel had sent uh, Sherazer and Ragim Malek and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, to ask for the mercy of the Lord, to, to seek the love of God, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, this is their question, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years during your exile, was it for me that you fasted? That ought to strike fear in our heart when God asked the question, did you do this for me? The obvious answer is what? No. Were not these uh, the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets with Jeru when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her, and the south, the hills of Judea, and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention. And turned a stubborn shoulder. And stopped their ears that they may not hear. Or, as the original says, their ears got heavy so that it was impossible to hear. They made their hearts... Diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. That was one of the jobs Zechariah had, was to remind the people of Israel of the former prophets. They're hardening themselves against the Word of God that came from these former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro. And the pleasant land was made desolate. This is a passage that, though it is ancient, though it is far removed from us, it's a passage that we need to hear. When I think about my life, I think of it in terms of brokenness. I don't know how you view yourself. I don't know how you see yourself. Maybe you're in the category of those who think they're pretty good and they are doing things kind of the way they ought to be done and that you deserve the goodness of God and that you have earned the right 
to have God's pleasure. That's not how I see myself. When someone compliments me, my biggest and most difficult day is to accept the compliment because I know my heart. As well as I can know it, before the Lord I know my heart. And Zechariah 7 could be written about me so often. God could say, Carlton, you have taken my word lightly. You have turned your shoulder in stubbornness. You have made your ears heavy so you don't hear my voice. Your heart is as hard as a diamond so that you resist my commands. And if you'll be honest with yourself, Grace Fellowship, and put away all the frivolous thinking where you think you're really good and really get to the core of who you are, Zechariah 7 is about you. More times than not, it's about you. You see, the problem Zechariah confronted in his day is the problem we confront in our day. Outward religion is popular. I get tired of hearing people say, you know, you know I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's, you know, I'm, I'm being persecuted because I go to church. No, you're not. I, I challenge anybody in this culture, where we live, to give me instances where you're persecuted, ridiculed for going to church. I don't believe they exist. I've never seen it. I've never heard someone say, what did you do yesterday on Monday morning? And the guy say, well, me and my family, we went to church. I've never at that point heard anybody face persecution. Not in our day. Why? Because the outward mode of religious activity is the culture here. As a matter of fact, when the people say, I didn't go to church. When they say, I went to the golf course, or I went to fish, or we laid around and watched the football game in the south, down here where we live, that's where the people kind of give a strange eye like, man, you're a heathen. That's what they're thinking. Whew, I'm at least I'm not as bad as that guy. If lightning is striking us in the office building today, it ain't going to hit me. Because I went to church. I'm a good person. Zechariah 7 is for our culture. Zechariah 7 could have been written about the south just like it was written about Judea. Just like it was written about the people in Jerusalem. Let's look at the text together. In the first paragraph we see that what what we're finding is that we are hypocritical. We are hypocritical men. We are hypocritical men. Look what it says here. They sent this band of brothers from Bethel, the house of the Lord, that the people they, of Bethel sent from the house of the Lord a band of brothers to ask if they could remove the fast which they had implemented. There are four fasts in the traditional calendar of the Jewish calendar, given in Zechariah 8, verse 19. If you just want to flip a page. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah. Seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, 
love, truth, and peace. So, there were four traditional fasts. Let me just quickly tell you, those fasts all set up around days in their calendar when the people of Jerusalem were crushed. One was set up because the people were crushed in the city of Jerusalem. One was set up because the leader of Judea was assassinated. One was set up because the people on that day were led out of Jerusalem in captivity. They, but notice this, God didn't set these up. God nowhere in the Bible says, fast on this day to mark this day. Don't do, he, don't do any eating on this day. Just think about the destruction of Jerusalem. The people, years before, set these fasts up. And now, in their hypocrisy, they come to God as if, oh, we have served You so well all these years. Can't we, Your people that were exiled for 70 years, can't we just have one of these fasts removed? It's so hard, God. This religious burden You've placed on us, God, is so difficult. They're hypocritical people. Just like hypocrites in our day. And you get real uncomfortable, don't you, when someone starts talking about their meeting with the Lord over the Scripture. You almost feel obligated to talk about the meeting you didn't have, but you would have had had you had a meeting with the Lord over the Scripture. Why? Because we live in a hypocritical culture. We live in a religious culture where if you don't have the right answer, everyone looks at you like the oddball. You know the guy who comes into work and he's obviously in a good mood and he says, man, this morning I was studying in John chapter 3. And I saw where, and he goes through his this, this, that. And the whole time, you're not hearing what God said to him because you're thinking, I didn't spend any time with God. i got to come up with something good. We're hypocrites. Even when we do good, what was the purpose of the good? Even when we do the religious routine, why are we doing it? Are we doing it for God? Are we doing it because God deserves, has right to our devotion? Or do we do it because we know the guy's coming into the office on Monday morning and he's going to have some profound thing to say about some passage in the Bible and we better have something. I don't want to look like a loser. That's kind of the condition I see of these messengers that come from the house of God, Bethel. They stroll into the city, they go to Zechariah, and they say, Zechariah, things are kind of hard. We did it for 70 years while we were in exile. Now that we're back, we're rebuilding this temple. How about we let that one go that fast? The heart is being exposed in this first paragraph. The heart of the hypocrite is being shown here. But then he doesn't stop there. He moves down in the text. Look at the next paragraph where we see that God always confronts our hypocrisy. The word of the Lord of hosts came to Zechariah and said, Say to this people and to the priests, Joshua and the other priests, and here's what he says to say. Here's the question. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited 
and prosperous with her cities. You know, the reality is that your religious nature is exposed more by what you do without thankfulness than what you do in dedication to God. Let me make that plain to you. We know more about our hearts away from this building than we do when we're in this building. That's what the text is indicating. When you fasted, were you fasting for me? You want to know how you know whether you were fasting for me? On the days that you eat, do you eat with thankfulness to me? That's what tells you whether you fasted for me or not. Not the fast day. Everybody feels holy on the fast day. Everybody feels acceptable when they're doing something good for God. What about on the normal day? For our modern day, we might say, when we come to church, are we coming for God? We coming for God's glory? We coming for His renown? We coming that we might be convicted and brought under the weight of our need of Him so that we leave with the encouragement of the good news and the gospel? I don't know that right now, but i tell you how you do know. What happens tomorrow when you're at work, for instance? Are you working for yourself and for your family? Or are you working for the glory of God? And it doesn't matter what your work is. You say, well, the pastor works for God. The priests in this text, they were working for God all those other days. No, no, no. All of Israel was to work for God. If you're a school teacher, an accountant, a banker, or whether you're the most blue collar of the blue collar, are you doing what you're doing for God? That tells you whether you're coming to church for God or not. You see how that works? So where are you? You the Monday through Saturday guy that goes to work, goes to play, goes to live without one thought, and on Saturday it dawns on you, i got to go to church tomorrow. And so you go in and say, honey, you know, let's go to church tomorrow. What God says about that is, that's for you. That's not for me. So we're hypocrites in our very being, in our natural man, the way we stand before God in our natural man is hypocritical. Even our good is for us, not for God. That's what the text is teaching us so far. But let's keep going. When this is confronted by God, like it is in this paragraph, there is a natural man response to it. And we're going to see it in this text. A a, a hypocritical man, when he faces conviction, responds responds in hard rebellion. Let's skip down to verse 11. And then we'll come back and see what God gives as an antidote, as a way of bringing our hearts in line with Him. Look what He says. But, this is a a factual statement. When Zechariah said what he said, this is what they did. They refused to pay attention. God gave them very specific things that exposed the goodness of the heart or the evil of the heart, and they refused to hear it. And they turned a shoulder. You've been there, haven't you? I've been there. You know, somebody, you're mad at somebody, you're angry in your spirit at someone, and they come in the room, what do you do? 
God came in the room in Zechariah's day and He told them what repentance looked like and they did this. More than that, they turned their back and they stopped their ears. And what little thing came through hit a diamond hard. Harder than a rock. This hardness develops over time, over years of laying hypocrisy over hypocrisy. It's like a diamond in the heat of the earth. It's formed in the heat and in the pressure of the earth. It's not like a rock on the surface. You take a rock on the surface, put it down on the hard surface, harder than it, take a sledgehammer and hit it, and it crushes. And what he's saying is, with the picture of the Word, is, it's like I put your heart down on a hard surface and smashed it with the call of repentance, and it just withstood the pressure. Why? Because for years it had been covered in hypocrisy and covered in hypocrisy and another layer of hypocrisy so that it got harder and more difficult for the Word to penetrate it. So now you've got, you refuse to listen, turn the back, stop the ears, and by the way, while that was going on, your heart was going harder and harder and harder so that any little trickle of the call of God that penetrates all those layers hits a hard surface and bounces off. That's the result of years of hypocrisy. Hardness. Ultimate hardness. So what is the call? I mean, we see the destruction that's coming. In verse 13, when I called them, they didn't hear me, so when they call me, I won't hear them. That's the word of the Lord to these people for their hardness. So we know that destruction is coming. They're hypocritical. God confronts their hypocrisy. They harden against His call. And now He's going to destroy them. Or He has destroyed them. The reason they're in exile, the reason that they continue in exile, is because of their hardness. Their rejection of God. What's the solution? How how do we ever get any hope here? Look in verse 9. The Gospel is in every book of the Bible. Do you believe that? In every book, there's a gospel message. In, uh, we might say in every chapter, in every section. Look what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That's the gospel. Oh, you look at me like you don't believe me. So, I kind of expected that. I anticipated it. Matthew chapter 5. Because listen, the way we tell the gospel in our day is that the gospel is something that saves us And its power really ends at that salvation. It doesn't have any impact or any change or any effect in the way we live our lives. But that's not the gospel of the Bible. That's not the message Jesus preached to the people. That's not the way God lived on this earth with us. No. The gospel has effect. 
And what we've seen in Zechariah chapter 7 is the effect of the gospel. It is the gospel. It's the outflow of the gospel. If you don't have these things characteristic in you, you are not in the gospel. That's really what the message is saying. So we look at Matthew chapter 5, and we're confronted with this very thing. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not one little vowel will pass away. It's all going to be there. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. What is he saying? Unless it exceeds the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes, unless it goes beyond the surface, your righteousness is worthless. Oh, it's good in terms of human good, but it's terrible. It's pitiful. It cannot stand under the weight of God's judgment. You very well may be the most righteous person in this room outwardly, but you will die and face hell unless your righteousness exceeds that. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what Zechariah was telling the people in his day. And that's what God told them. So what did God say? How do we know whether our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees? Do you oppress the poor? Do you care for the fatherless? Do you go hard after the widow to make sure she has what's needed for life? Do you render justice? In other words, the practical outflow of the gospel witnesses to the gospel, whether it is in you or not. Without the practical outflow of the gospel, you have no reason to believe you are in the gospel. You have every reason to doubt whether you really know Christ. If you look at your life and it's just the outward fixings and trappings and no heart, you don't have anything. And how do we know whether the heart's involved? The work that is is coming out of the gospel is for the least, the disenfranchised. Jesus says, those who cannot repay you. A life like that cannot be faked over a lifetime. You go to the nursing home in Jacksonville and you work hard and you sweat, and you bleed a little, and you get blisters from working, and the whole time you think, boy, I'm good, aren't I? There's not many people that would do what I'm doing right now. I mean, I'm digging these holes in this hard clay. I'm telling you, they got clay up there they can make adobe bricks out of. We ran into it, didn't we, Paul? (laughs) But the whole time we were working was our heart saying, I'm good. Man, there ain't nobody. Look at a few people showed up for this. I'm a good person. Then you were doing it for you, right? Not for God. 
you weren't really caring for the widow. You were caring for yourself. The test of our gospel effect in our heart is what flows out of the gospel heart. Jesus says, unless it exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, your righteousness doesn't do you anything. Doesn't do you any good. He goes on to do that very thing, doesn't he? And we won't do it for time's sake, but every paragraph after that is, you heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, you shall not even be angry. You heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. You heard that it was said you shouldn't give an oath or swear falsely, but I say to you, don't take any oaths by heaven or by earth or by the temple. Don't do any of that. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. You heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. Don't come back after him. You have heard it said, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do this. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is Jesus' distillation of heart-level, gospel-affected holiness. And if you don't have gospel-affected holiness, you don't have a gospel heart. That's what Jesus says, not Carlton. Because your righteousness has not exceeded that of the Pharisees and Gentiles, and it has not exceeded that of the people in the day of Zechariah. Trust me, we are nothing in comparison to the Jews in righteousness outwardly. We are nothing. None of us. Matthew 22 gets to the heart. Let's let's look at Matthew 22. Jesus says, because I know you're saying, Carlton, I'm saved by... Justified by faith alone. It's not my works. You're right. But the only way you know whether you've been justified, James says, is whether you're working. If you're not working, you're not justified because faith works. Same thing Jesus said. Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Teacher, verse 36, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the prophets and the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two great commandments. When Paul was giving this in Galatians, he didn't say anything about loving God. All he said is, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the whole law. What are we to get from that? Love your neighbor as yourself? The golden rule is the whole law? Yes. Because it's impossible in your flesh to love your neighbor as yourself. It's impossible. Because even in your acts of kindness and love, it will be for you, not for God. 
The church, the Reformed church of our day has gotten afraid of saying these things. Has drawn back from talking about personal holiness. We sat in a conference this week, heard a profound message from a young pastor, Kevin DeYoung, about this very subject. Two things the modern Reformation movement is still lacking. A call to global missions. Not just the call, but the actual going. And secondly, a commitment to personal holiness. Without which, you will not see the face of God. So it's not me that's talking about this. It's God who talks about it. Mark chapter 7. Jesus says again, He quotes for us Isaiah 29, 13. This people, verse 6 and 7, This people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. In vain do they worship Me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. That's Zechariah to a T. You leave the commandments of God to keep a fast day that you committed to, not God committed you to, and now you want out from under it. And you're blaming God because of the fast day. And He didn't tell you to do it in the first place. You did it. That's Him to a T. What's Jesus' interpretation, exposition of both Zechariah and of Isaiah 29, verse 14. And He called the people to Him again and said to them, Hear Me, all of you, and understand. Don't turn your back on Me, He's saying. Don't close your ears. Don't let... Don't let your understanding go dull. There is nothing outside the person that going in can defile him, but the thing that comes out of a person defiles him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters, into, enters not into his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all food clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. You want to know what it is that proves you don't have the gospel? What's coming out of you? That's what Jesus says. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It's not your environment that's sinful. You're sinful, Jesus is saying. The reason sin comes out of you is because you're not in the Gospel. Zechariah would say it this way, forget your fast days. You do it for yourself anyway. The proof that you're doing it for yourself anyway is what you're doing the rest of the time. You eat unto yourself, not unto God. And you don't care about the widow. And you don't care about justice. And you don't care about the poor. You could give a flip about the widow. You don't have the Gospel. And this is where I am. More than I like to admit it. Evil flowing out of the heart. Just one more thing. 
to prove what I'm saying from Jesus. Mark 10, verse 17. He was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher! Now we know you can't call him good unless God has revealed him as good to you. Jesus said that in John 3. You can't call a man a good teacher unless he's really a good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The righteous tablet of the Ten Commandments. The very things He talked about in Matthew 5. Zechariah 7. The Jews would have been great at keeping this. And he said, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you only lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it what? To the poor. If you do this, you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Disheartened by the saying. Dull understanding, turning a hard shoulder, heavy ears, diamond hard heart. The man leaves sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus says it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But what is difficult with man, God can only do. God can only do. So, where do we end? I mean, this lays us waste. We can't do this. If you leave here saying, I'm going to try harder, you fail before you get up out of the pew. What would I exhort you to? Well, I would exhort you to cling to the only one who has done this and has never failed. He is found for you in the Scripture in Matthew chapter 4. Just before Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes and all the things we focus on, Jesus, at the beginning of His ministry, goes into the wilderness. You're right where Zechariah says the people were in his day. You are hard-hearted. You are living hypocrisy. What do you do? You cling to the one who was not a hypocrite. You hold to the one in faith who always kept the law from his heart. He didn't abolish it, but he fulfilled it. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led away by the Spirit into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I won't covet bread so much that I create my own, but I'll cling to God's Word, and He will give me the bread of life. That's Jesus' answer. The devil came to Him and said, Then, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you on their hands. They will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus says again, it is written from the Old Testament, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again the devil. So he withstood that. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. And the devil left him. And behold, the angels came and ministered to him. You want to know how it is you move from hypocrisy into true law-keeping? From a gospel-oriented heart, you hold on to the one who kept the law. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His acceptance by the Father becomes your acceptance by the Father. His standing before the throne of God becomes your standing before the throne of God. Or, it's like a man who goes on a journey and finds a treasure. And having found the treasure, he takes the treasure and buries it in a field and sells everything he has so he can have the treasure. It's like a man who finds a pearl with great price and he sells all that he has to have the one pearl of great price. What I'm telling you is you pull back the layers of facades of hypocrisy and say, I'm a dirty, rotten, scoundrel of a man. I am a sinner into my inner being. And I have no hope except that the blood of Christ pleads on my behalf. I don't turn my back on God. I run to God. That's repentance. The call of repentance is turn your back on yourself and run to God. Not turn your back on God and call deeper into the hole of yourself. Listen, you can't morally improve. You can't become acceptable. On your merit, you must cling to Jesus Christ. And when you cling to Jesus Christ, you will care about justice. You will feed the poor. You will take care of the orphan. You will minister to the widow. And you will invite those into your home who cannot repay you. Because that's how a gospel heart works. The problem is not that we need to try harder to be good, but rather we need to be in Christ, having His grace work in and through us. So that we can effort, give God-ordained effort by the gospel towards holiness. And that's the call. The only question left is, will you come to him. I remember when uh, Bobby Bowden was sharing his testimony. He said that he, uh, and just honestly, I don't, I don't really like hearing most of the time coaches give their talks because they make it kind of trite, honestly, a lot of times. <clears throat> so I didn't have high expectations for Bobby Bowden, to be honest with you. I'm not a Florida State fan. And Free Shoes University has never impressed me. He said, when I was at Howard playing baseball, I was an average hitter at best. My senior year, my last home game, I hit a ball as hard as I've ever hit it. The ball sailed to the outfield and rang off the top rail of the fence back into the field of play. I'm running, I'm digging from the time it left because I know I'm not strong enough to hit it out. I've never hit the ball out of the ballpark in my life. I know it's not going out. It's deep, though. I got a shot. I'm fast, and I'm running. 
And I round first and head for second, and I look out the outfield, and they're still running after the ball. Around second, my coach is waving me to third, and around third, into home, I slide into home. My mama's behind the plate, cheering, because her baby boy scored. He had a home run in the park. My teammates are greeting me. And all of a sudden, I got this eerie feeling because out of the corner of my eye, I saw the first baseman saying, My heart sank. They threw the ball into him. He stepped on the base, first base, and the umpire thundered. Out! Because I missed first base. I tagged every other base, but I missed first base. It's a testimony of a life lived without Christ. A good life. A righteous life. No Jesus. Means you missed first base. It means second, third, and home mean nothing. You're out. You're out. So some of you have heard this message and you say, I'm a good person. But I would say you're, you need to know, are you in Christ? If you're not in Christ, the rest of good will do you no good. It will only damn you in front of the Father. And for some of you, you've tagged first base. The ball is still ringing off the top rung of the fence and you're standing on first base. You're saying, I'm in Jesus. I'm saved. And very well you may be. But what confidence do you have? You keep doubting your salvation? Could it be that you're not running by the grace of God in Christ toward home? You're just standing. You're just hanging out. I don't know where you are. God knows where you are. And it's my prayer you will examine through Him where you are. Have you missed first base? You're a good person. And therefore, it all's for naught. Or did you hit a, hit a ball and run to first and stop? Neither is acceptable. Neither is the call of the gospel, but rather to run in Christ toward home. Run in Christ toward home. Zechariah would say, don't turn the shoulder, don't close the ears, don't harden the heart. Repent and turn to God. Let's pray.